With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning. This is Michael Vandervoort, and it's July 26th. A few more days left in this month, and then we're into the dog days of summer. Um, I am recording a solo episode uh, this week with a, a colleague of mine that I've worked with uh, through a couple of different organizations for the last six or seven years, Nick Calm. Nick, welcome to Drive Through HR. How are you this morning? Good morning, Michael. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to glad to be able to sit down and chat with you. We we uh, got used to seeing you a couple times a year, and that hasn't been quite the hasn't been quite the same over the last uh, two or three years. So we're no, there's a little pandemic in the way there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, so Nick is uh, Nick Calm is a. Uh, He's the owner of Reputation Partners, a founder, and uh, built built the firm. Um, and I'll let I'll let him tell you a little bit more about Reputation Partners. But he works in the the PR space with crisis communications and some other some some other areas. So I guess why don't you go ahead, Nick, and just give your bio background here, and we'll start into our conversation. Absolutely good. No, very good. And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, depending on when you're listening to this, or good evening. I guess it could be yeah. any of those times. <laughs> um, so yes, I am Nick Calm. I'm the founder of Reputation Partners. We're a national strategic communications and public relations firm. I started the firm 20 years ago after a couple of long stints at other large public relations firms, and I just got that entrepreneurial bug. And what we do, if you can, as you can appreciate with the name Reputation Partners, we deal with all manage, man, manner of organizational and leadership reputation, how to enhance it if it's already pretty good, how to protect it if there's some sort of a threat, how to rebuild it and protect it if it's in some sort of a crisis. So that's what we do. We work with a lot of very large companies and trade associations and universities and not-for-profits uh, literally from coast to coast. Yeah, and and your uh, your your company is 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 living right now in an opportunity rich environment. It seems there's <laughs> indeed indeed it, it's it's actually always been the case, but it's especially the case now because I think uh, as I know we're going to talk about more here, companies unlike anything, and I've been doing this a long time, more than thirty years. I'm seeing more companies wade into political issues than I ever have before. I mean, and I started out as a company lobbyist and public affairs guy for a couple of companies in the life sciences industry. So we knew all about, you know, engaging in issues that directly have impacted the business. But the thing that's happened now in the last few years where companies are basically going, wait a minute, here's this very controversial social issue. Let's take a public position on that. I mean, I, I never thought I would see the day, but here it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it happens a lot in, and I guess, I mean, we've seen, we'll get, we'll get into some specific examples and, and you and I have talked about this a lot, uh, as I, as I said, in the pre-show, we've talked about it a lot, sort of in all these different forums, uh, tweets and emails and stuff. Cause it's, it's super interesting, but it's like, uh, it's kind of like, it, well, it's a slippery slope for sure. You're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, because the public expectations, I think employee expectations, um, the, the, you know, understanding what values a company holds, a corporation represents, 
there seem to be more hot button issues with consumers and you know all kinds of things but but and so some companies embrace it pretty openly and I guess, you know, have varying levels of success. I'm not going to try to finger model, you know, figure out a model to, to cite, but some companies seem to, to negotiate the, the controversy. I guess one might be like Patagonia. They're really known for entering environmental issues and using it to build their brand. And, you know, they probably take heat from time to time. But overall, I think it's been a, that's it for, you know, maybe they stick to their knitting on a couple of, one, couple of lanes, but, mm-hmm. but I think that's been really helpful for their brand. And I don't recall seeing too many, you know, bad bumps in, in the road, but there are, you know, there are, uh, there are a number of others um, that have come up recently. I think one of the most uh, glaring that we talked about quite a bit was Disney, which, yeah. uh, you know, was, is, I mean, I live here in Florida, as you know, and Disney's just up the road and I've had a chance to talk to people at, at Disney over the years. And, and they're like one of the most, or has, have always been one of the most conservative brands, super protective of their, of their image and, you know, almost paranoid about it, it with, you know, with good reason. And, and yet this year they sort of did a com- almost 180 degree flip-flop in, in that, in that, you know, and I know you were like, what, what the hell? <laughs> I think exactly. that was, that was the impression I got anyway. That's so, a good gag is that quote, I think was my. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. May, maybe there was an F instead of the H, but whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but may, let's start, let's start with that and just kind of, you know, talk about maybe like a little bit about I mean, most people probably kind of recognize what they did, but maybe we can just sum up a little bit sort of the issue and, you know, kind of the, the, the position they, they staked out and pressure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, right. I mean, if you think about it, is there any company more associated with families and children than Disney? No, right. I mean, I can't think of a single one. And then they, as you know, they decided to wade into the so-called don't say gay law, the law that uh, Governor DeSantis promoted and got passed through the uh, legislature there in Florida that basically restricted what could be taught at what ages in school as it relates to gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I what the situation there was that there was some subgroup of the employee population that responded to the CEO's initial comment of we're not going to get involved in politics, put more pressure on him and then the company decided to get very significantly involved in that issue, uh, vocally opposed to the law that Governor DeSantis had passed with the legislature. And the result of that was it called into question and they started, the legislature started to move to strip their special taxing body that is basically the self-governing entity that essentially governs the property that is owned by Walt Disney World. So they aren't subject to, or haven't been until this most recent change, environmental laws and other regulations that are typical of any other business that's operating in Florida, including your employer and, you know, tens of thousands of others. The thing that really surprises me about these companies, and I know we're going to talk more about this and certainly Disney as well. If you're any kind of a company that's in any way regulated or dependent on governmental um, dispensation, permissions, incentives, whatever, the interesting thing about this is what, you know, it used to be that Um, companies um, were very solidly Republican companies, meaning that they counted on and benefited from Republican support, slowing down or limiting regulations or preventing them. What's happened now, and and the Disney-DeSantis kerfuffle is a great example of this. I mean, even though they're arguably what one of the largest private employers in the state of Florida, Governor DeSantis has basically said, I'm not going to do any favors for them. I don't care what a California-based company that has too many ties to the Chinese Communist Party wants or not. 
I mean, he has completely disavowed them. Now they've lost their chief communications person. I don't know whether he was a fall guy for some of the fallout that came out of this, but the point, the larger point I'm trying to make here is companies, if they go down this path, Delta Airlines saw it, others saw it, they basically become entities that have no patrons in the political process. Democrats view companies in a not positive way. They are very favorable to unions, as you know, they favor regulations, they don't like seeing things like large CEO profits and so forth. So they could usually take comfort in having some Republican elected officials as their defenders and protectors. But now Republicans are basically disavowing companies left and right. So if you're a company and you're basically disavowed by the Republicans and the Democrats view you unfavorably as well, how do you prevent yourself from being overly regulated, overly litigated, overly legislated? That's really a question. And when I'm talking to my clients who are thinking about taking political points of view, I ask them to think very long and hard about that for that reason, among many others that I know we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So I want to back up, you know, Disney is, I mean, Disney's kind of the poster child example, I guess. Um, I don't want to bang on Disney. Um, I mean, but and I understand that that circumstance was sort of unique. I mean, there was a political issue there. They had a little bit of employee disengagement, you know, with a loud voice and they, they, they sort of flip-flopped and it got chaotic. Um, I want to go back to why, why are, are we seeing companies engaging in this behavior in the first place? Like it's a, it seems to me it's a big significant change that's developed maybe slowly over the last few years, but companies wouldn't be doing this if they didn't see some, potential benefit along with the risk, because they certainly have to be aware of the risks. Yeah, I don't know that they're fully assessing the risks, though, Michael. That's part of the thing that I kind of question. And that's, you know, I've written blog posts about this as well. It's, you know, really do a careful assessment. I think they are, to a large degree, seeing, look, this is a way to curry favor with our younger employees, younger employees. And there, are, of course, there are studies after studies that show that younger employees want and even expect the companies they work for to be socially responsible and to take positions on social issues. So there's no denying that. I think that is a part of it. And then again, a lot of the CEOs of this company, I think Disney is an exception, but a lot of the CEOs of these companies themselves are in maybe in their 30s and 40s. So they're basically Gen X themselves. So they grew up with that same sort of sensibility that is in effect with even younger employees, the Gen Zs and so forth. So they they have an orientation towards taking a position, taking a stand. They're getting encouraged from either, a, you know, I don't know if it's a minority of their employees, but it's certainly a vocal uh, subset of their employees. And what they're choosing to do essentially is to say, look, we think we can get more customers. We think we can get more employees who are going to want to work with us or for us and buy from us and, you know, attend our parks and our movies and our other attractions if we do this. And they're downplaying the amount that it turns off. And I get why they do downplay it a bit, because historically boycotts specifically haven't worked. Yeah. And I think they're misinterpreting boycott. I think they're misinterpreting the situation as follows. They're seeing that boycotts have historically not worked. So they are not in They're They're conflating that with people just saying, you know what, if Disney's going to take a position on that issue, I'm not going there anymore. I don't care how much my kid wants to go there. Is Universal Studios doing that? Is SeaWorld doing that? Is, um, you know, any other attraction that could be out there that I could attend with my family taking a position? You know what? I'm, I'm going to do that instead. 
they aren't, I don't think they are fully accounting for the lost customers that they have. And I think they may be overestimating the amount of upside from a sales or reputation or loyalty or market share standpoint that they are getting from taking those positions. So I think that's it. I think they're, they're listening to the loudest bell and the loudest bell is this group of employees and activists outside of companies that are pressuring companies to do this. But, you know, again, my, I'm, you know, I'm not an overly cautious person by nature, but I encourage my clients to just think carefully about this. And there's a great example. I don't know if we were going to talk about this later. You know, the recent Dobbs decision coming out of the Supreme Court. I was just sitting here thinking about that. Yeah. Overturning Roe v. Wade. And there was just a conference board uh, study that I would encourage people to look at. Do you know the number of companies that took a public position on uh, the Dobbs decision? Eight percent. Only eight. Eight percent. And yet they got a lot of they got a lot of press out out of it. They did. But it was a, a, a I mean, that's a small minority. And I think the combination of what happened to Disney in terms of backlash what's happening to some other companies in terms of backlash as well. Plus the fact that, wait a minute, you know, I don't think I really want to go there. Something like abortion. I mean, it's like, you cannot think of it even, it's even more controversial than gun control. Um, even the list of companies, I presume you saw, there was a big full page ad that a bunch of companies signed on basically encouraging Congress to take action on guns. Mm-hmm. That even that was very carefully written in such a way that it wasn't specifically saying we want to ban assault weapons. We want to raise the legal age for people to own guns to 21. It's, they weren't taking specific positions. They were basically saying, Congress, do something. That has very high popularity. But what the something is, is something different. So I think, think again, I don't want to overplay it, but I think companies are beginning, based on what happened to Disney, based on what's happened to some other companies, are beginning to take a little bit more of a thoughtful and deliberate approach about when and how they engage in some of these issues. I mean, why would Delta Airlines and American Airlines take a position on a voting rights issue? That has nothing to do with airplanes getting people and cargo from point A to point B. It really does not. Right. It has it has a lot to do with the country and a lot to do with, you know, disenfranchisement and everything else, but why wade into something like that when you're dependent on things like subsidies and regulations and all of these other things that airlines are so heavily dependent on. It just, it's, it's mystifying why it's happening to some degree. You asked me why it's happening to some degree. I think it's just listening to the squeaky wheel, but a big part of it just has me scratching my head. And again, I think companies are just not thinking through what they are putting at risk in terms of customer loyalty and not having any kind of, uh, you know, governmental friend left, which again, if you're, if you're a regulated industry and these days, you know, so many, companies, it's hard to think of a kind of a company that isn't subject to some level of regulation, you know, why you would do that and basically leave yourself without an ally. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Delta and the voting rights thing. This isn't really directly on point to what we're talking about, but there's a lot of, a lot of times unintended consequences, or in this, in the case I'm about to cite some irony in that Delta, Delta, you know, squawked the government, you know, the, you know, they reacted major league baseball pulled the, the all-star game out of Atlanta. And then in the same season, the Braves won the world series. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like, I don't know if that was, you know, karma or, or some yin yang influence or whatever, but like, and none of that really adds up to like, a, a, I mean, I, you know, Delta was dung, dinged by it, I guess, but um, it just, it's kind of like, none of that would have been played out had they been probably gaming, you know, 
brainstorming this stuff. But um, I, I guess that um, I guess where I want to go next, Nick, is um, so there's you know there's there's this whole thing about the environment, right? I mean, like being responsible, carbon free, mm -hmm. you know not you know green but not in the political sense of green but like truly trying to you know save the earth green those mm -hmm. are things that people i think those types of issues under the esg policies as these things are sometimes called i think i think corporations that support that um don't get hurt as much as they do if they enter into these other issues like you mentioned the dobbs decision and yeah you know but some company like in that it, you know i didn't know it was just eight percent and uh, we've had the conference board on as a guest, people from the conference board on as a few times, and they always have great research. So that number, you know, resonates with me if they said it. But it did seem as though, like, it, it just in an instant, as soon as the Dobbs decision came out, that there was like one company after another after another announcing that they were going to fund this or they'd relocate their people to another state or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, I guess there must be some value, like, and maybe it goes back to, you know, trying to maintain employee loyalty and, you know, I, I don't know, but it, it, it certainly is, a um, it certainly is whacking the hornet's nest, isn't it? It absolutely is. Well, and I think just a couple of things I'm thinking about as you're talking about that one specifically is the, you know, the idea here of, first of all, the, again, I keep, I'm not, as a disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, okay, Great. but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last <laughs> But anyway, no, but I mean, and I've seen now some law firms and lawyers commenting specifically about this. These companies that are, you know, rushing to pay for employees to travel to get abortions, you know, they are definitely opening themselves up to some significant potential legal liability by doing so. And this, again, goes back to that kind of knee jerk. We got to go out and do something right now. So let's let's agree to tell our employees we're going to pay for them to travel if they're in a state that is restricted or banned abortion to a state that hasn't. There are some real legal implications, again, there in terms of FMLA, in terms of uh, HIPAA, in terms of any number of other restrictions that are on companies there specifically. A lot of health plans don't allow it as well for those that are uh, uh, basically funded by a third party there or, or, or covered by a third party payor, if you will. So I think that's a big issue, number one. Number two, and again, this is maybe a more of a fringe view, and I think because your uh, audience is HR people. Again, I don't know how widely viewed this is, but you know, some folks have looked at this and say, you know, what a sinister and Machiavellian things for companies to do, to basically pay for and therefore encourage their employees to go get abortions, because what does that do to a company's healthcare costs ultimately long-term? Children cost money. Mm -hmm. Children as a covered lives, as you well know, drive up a company's healthcare costs. So if we're going to kick in $4,000 or whatever it is for somebody to go get an abortion, then that's going to be uh, limiting the number of lives that our plan has to cover. So I don't, you know, again, I've been around a lot of HR people for a long, long time. I would be hard pressed to think of a single one that thought that that was a reason to. Right. Me too. <laughs> but, but yeah. I think the reality is that's actually a real effect of that is it reduces the covered the number of covered lives that a plan has to cover and therefore makes the a company's healthcare expense less but that's such a terribly kind of sinister way of looking at things and the other thing again again not to be political one way or the other but you know do companies really want to be on the side of being against families because that is how 
the people who are critical of those things view it. And again, they're not silent about these things. Right. They're just not demanding that companies not do this the way some people inside a, co a company and outside are demanding that they do. Yeah. And, and then, and then you have the, you have like a, another scenario that happened, you know, after the Parkland situation or one of the, sorry, there's so many mass shootings. And I, you I know, know one, uh, one just about 10 miles from my house. And yeah, my wife and I go for dinner all the time. I don't I mean to, I don't mean to dismiss it. I, just, I don't remember specifically which one this is, but I'm thinking of Dick's sporting goods. Yeah. Who literally took a very, what they presented and seemed to me in my, in my mind, a very principled stand on the sale of, of guns mm -hmm. saying, you know, we, we, we can't continue to allow our society to, you know, so we're not going to be part of it. Um, you know, that, and that was received with a obviously mixed reaction. I mean, the, the, the two a people hated it and, mm -hmm. you know, probably more liberal side loved it. Right. Um, and they've stuck to it. Um, yep. And so, so, so I assume their CEO or their board or, you know, whoever ultimately makes those decisions at that level, um, that, that must've been a true core value that they felt was worth the pain, right? So well, yeah, and then again, even that, that example, that was deciding whether or not to sell a product yep. that is normally sold at the company's stores. Right. So it's like the same way when Walgreens and CVS decided to stop stocking cigarettes. Right. It's like, you know, and again, I don't know that there, I mean, other than Altria and the other uh, cigarette or tobacco companies, I don't know that anybody was terribly upset about Walgreens or CVS deciding not to do that, but deciding we will sell, we won't sell a particular product. That's core business decisions, right? I mean, if your company decided you weren't going to sell cauliflower right. for some reason, right. like, okay, I mean, that's your prerogative, right? right? People can go buy cauliflower somewhere else, but it's like, that's a, 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 that's a much more easily defensible decision than some of these things that, you know, are several degrees of separation away from whatever the company's core business is. Yeah. Um, so in the interest of time, and because I have a couple other things I want to ask yeah. you about, I mean, I know you said you'd give your clients advice, but let's let's kind of walk down through the consider. The, the, there's legal and there's some other things. Let's kind of walk down through the considerations maybe that you present to a client if they're thinking of doing you know something along these lines. What should HR people um, be helping their companies think about? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it again is you know let at least take a breath and figure out why are you thinking of taking a position. I mean, it's something as simple as that. You know, if you can't answer the why are you doing something, you know, back to the old, I'm dating myself now, Roger Mudd asking Ted Kennedy why he's running for president and Ted Kennedy couldn't answer the question. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just basically he was expected to as the last in a line of brothers who would all run for president. That was basically it. So asking yourself, why are we considering taking on a position? And then is, are we an organization that's known for taking controversial stance, Right. I mean, that's the thing. You mentioned Patagonia earlier. Dix has now done that, at least on a limited basis. REI, you know, back in the day, the body shop, remember that company that mm -hmm. basically said they weren't going to do animal testing? You know, there are certain companies where it is just sort of part of their ethos is to be, yeah, we are a socially active company. But if you're not, think about that. And what? how are people going to react if we take this? And how are we going to answer the question, you know, why are we deciding to speak up about this now? And then how does it align with our corporate values or our corporate mission? What about our corporate policies, right? 
And then are you just putting out a press release and trying to get the, oh yeah, good for XYZ company, or are you prepared to have a meaningful impact on an issue? Because if you're just doing a press release and just hoping to get attaboys or girls for that, you know, people kind of see through that, you know, the same way we have, you were talking about ESG, the same reason we have a term like greenwashing, you know, I don't know what the appropriate equivalent would be on some of these social issues, but it's basically social issues washing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a big part of it. And then, you know, again, thinking about the different stakeholders, whether it's customers or employees or government officials or business partners or investors, you know, what do they think about this issue? Again, take the time and at least soft sound them, if not do a more formal assessment of what their view is, because you don't, you don't want to just sit there and assume that everybody is going to support what you're doing. Look at how divided this country is. It's been more divided on so many different issues than I've ever seen it in my lifetime. Yeah. So any action you take is by its very nature going to alienate a huge swath of the population, right? So, and then if we're going to do something like, I'm going to pick an example, supporting an organization like Black Lives Matter, right? You saw, remember, the whole, a whole rush of companies to write enormous checks to that organization in the wake of the George Floyd murder. But none of them had done any due diligence. How does this organization fundraise? How do they spend money? Is it efficient at all? It was just basically, let's rush to show we really care about this issue by funding Black Lives Matter, right? And then if we get pressure back from either inside or outside, are we prepared to stay the course or are we going to back off, right? You have to think those things through. And there's no reason to do these things spur of the moment one day to the next. Even in the worst case scenario, meaning a huge amount of urgency that the company would have, they still have, I would say, minimum four, five, six, seven business days to consider this. So the idea is what I, and this again is the case of all crisis management as well. Think about what you're going to do when you're in a crisis before you're in a crisis. Think about what you're going to do about various social issues and other controversial issues before one pops up that calls on you then to speak up. So that becomes really important as well. And then, you know, if we're, are we prepared to lose sales? Are we prepared to lose customers? Are we prepared to lose employees? You know, that kind of assessment, it just needs to be kind of a thorough look at all of those things, I would say. Um, is it, if you're, and I appreciate that. I, I mean, I think that's all solid, solid advice and, you know, kind of a good checklist, if you will, even though it's verbal, a good checklist just to at least think about. Um, is, is, I guess I'm asking for your opinion here. I think I know the answer, but assuming that some company, you know, is an issue comes forward and it's not necessarily what we've been talking about where they've taken a position that will instantly become unpopular with one group or another, but let's just say it's more of a traditional kind of crisis that arises mm -hmm. and, you know, you're, you're, you're being pressured um, as a PR person and as a crisis advisor, do you typically tell companies to stay the course or does it kind of, in other words, like if they're, if you're challenged for a position on a position, whatever it may be, is it better to just kind of write it out or is it better to try to figure out how to navigate those waters or does it depend on the circumstances? Yeah, it really depends totally on the circumstances and what kind of, you know, rationale the company has for doing whatever it did to find itself in hot water. Mm -hmm. Again, were they the only company that was doing something 
Were they one of a bunch of different companies? Were they, did every other company in that industry stop doing whatever this company is doing? And they're then sort of out there twisting in the wind as the only company? Or did none of them do it? And then they're putting pressure on this company to be the leader so that the same way unions put pressure on one company to be recognized so that it can help leverage organizing efforts elsewhere. It really, de it really depends. And that's part of why what I really try to stress to clients is get the data you've got gather that beforehand, because if you can justify, not just through nice, eloquent words, but data that back up whatever it is that you're trying to defend, you know, if the company is being accused of not having enough people of color in management, what are your stats on that? If, you, if it's going to take you a while to go out and gather that, and if you look at those stats and you see that only, you know, 8% of your management is people of color, then you kind of know you've got an issue. If on the other hand, you know that, you know, 45% of your managers are people of color in that example, you use that statistic because you've gathered it in advance. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the strongest defense, not just nice words, but, you know, we are absolutely committed to having people of color in our management ranks. And in fact, we're proud of the fact that 45% of our managers identify that. Mm -hmm. Boom. You know, you're, that's, I mean, any reasonable person is going to go, wow, that's, that's a pretty good percentage. And again, I'm obviously just using arbitrary numbers yeah. on the high side and the low side. But the importance of having that data and gathering it beforehand, before you find yourself in hot water, because it takes time to gather that stuff. And again, yes, I know companies are so busy. They're running around. They've got all these different priorities, challenges by the day, short staff, blah, 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 all of those things. This has got to be a priority for companies. It's the thing I preach like all the time to people because- that makes the difference often in a crisis from success and failures. If you've got some good data around the areas where you're likely to be vulnerable upfront and you can get, and first of all, if the numbers are low, that's a signal, hey, we need to do something. Yeah, that's right. right? Time to I mean, think, we, think about some should, action. Yeah, yeah, we should actually, that 8% number is low. We need right. to actually get that up and maybe our target is 20% or whatever it is, but here are the specific things. So even then, even if they are caught and being criticized because it's only 8%, you can say, look, and this is maybe back to your original question. You know, we know that our numbers of our management ranks of people of color are low. And in fact, we are very specifically focused on changing that. And we've got a goal of getting it to 20% by the year 2025. And here are the five or six actions that we're taking to try to address that. Boom, 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 boom. Again, what would a reasonable person say in response to that? They've admitted that their numbers are low. They're committed to changing it. They're specific about what they're doing to address it. What else could a reasonable person expect a company to do in that situation? Right. They're doing it. Right. Yes, hold them accountable. Make sure they do it. Maybe suggest, well, you're doing these six things. Why aren't you doing this seventh thing that's very popular? Okay. But then, you know, then you're already legitimately addressing an issue. And then it becomes just a debate about how and how quickly and how well. That's a whole different thing to this, this company, company A, B, C does not care about having people of color in their management right? Right. Yeah. And it, you, and it also helps you kind of get through the news cycle and people right. move on to the next thing, whatever that well, may be. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Because people's attention spans and news media's attention spans, they're like a gnat. I used to describe them as being like a three-year-old child. Now that's even too long. It's basically <laughs> non-existent. It's, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I think I suffer from some of that loss of <laughs> well, attention. Well, we all do because we're overwhelmed with information, yeah. right? Yeah. Texts and tweets and 
social media, other social media posts and blogs and media yeah. and calls, conversations, podcasts. And calls and podcasts, right? <laughs> we're all, we're all exactly. competing for our, for our eyeballs. Um, so I want to, I want to, I want to kind of head towards a wrap up, but I do want to talk about a couple other, couple other quick things. And mostly because, you know, we both are very interested in the labor relations space and I know yes. it's a part of your practice. So yep. we're seeing, you know, we did, I did a show the other day with an attorney and mentioned it in the pre-show where we're seeing all kinds of activity, but the, some of the monolithic companies, Amazon um, and, and Starbucks have been in the news a lot. Amazon is, it's kind of quieted down because they're in the midst of a long litigation uh, effort in Phoenix, I think, trying mm -hmm. to resolve a couple of different election out challenges. Um, but Starbucks has been in the news for like nine months now. It's been, it's been the labor relations story of the century, perhaps. Um, 200th, uh, that the 200th individual Starbucks store was just organized last week. Uh, wow. I, forget, I forget where it was, but 200 election wins in under nine months. That That's super, uh, it's super impressive by a by any any stretch of the of the labor relations world right now. So oh, yeah, but Starbucks is 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 taking a pretty strong beating over their their response, their their campaign. I mean, they've pushed back hard, which employers are entitled to do. Um, they've also uh, terminated. Not at first they didn't. At first they didn't though. That's true. They they I don't think that. Yeah, I think they were paralyzed because I think they thought it would. I, 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 I really don't know. I don't know yes. anyone at Starbucks. I've never. No, they were very mealy mouthed about it at first. Yeah, they, I think they didn't believe it would get legs, and then once it got legs, then they kind of they, <laughs> they came back very robustly. Um, it, but it's not necessarily in a way that has given them great optics. I mean, they're terminating. Uh, you know, they're being accused of union busting very, very frequently because they terminate a, a number of associates who have been union supporters for, you know, what they claim are legit reasons. They just announced some store closures uh, They're You know, they've they've conducted Howard. They brought Howard Schultz back out of retirement and right. he's been conducting listening sessions all over the country. Reinvention sessions, I think yep. they call them. So right. there's a, there's a kind of a, I mean, there's like a multiple multi-pronged response there. But like, I guess what I'm curious to hear is from the PR crisis response perspective, like, I don't, I don't want you to criticize them specifically, but like, what, what have they done right? And what have they done wrong? If you could opine on that for a minute, or maybe maybe there's a different way that you would prefer to to answer that, but it just- Well, yeah, I mean, I think part of what they did wrong was the kind of mealy mouth initial approach. Yeah. Right? And this is a lot of companies do this too. And I'm sure you've seen even more of this than I have, Michael. It's like, you know, you're going to be called, especially these days, especially given the popularity that unions enjoy among the general public, the fact that they have, you know, no better friend in the White House than they've ever had. I mean, mm -hmm. Joe Biden, you know, and Marty Walsh at the, at the labor board. and. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, at the Department of Labor, I should say, and then the Labor Board being constituted the way it is. I mean, the environment is heavily stacked in unions favor. And the thing is, you're going to be called a union buster if you do anything other than welcome the union in with open arms. So you got to embrace that to some degree, I think. And again, the store closing, the firings, all of that stuff, very controversial. One of the things that's especially challenging for a company like Starbucks is they have this very progressive ethos. And one of the things that I've opined about as well is, you know, whether you're a company or a university or a not-for-profit or whatever, if you are going to, and again, that's just not a political statement, but if you are embracing a progressive ethos as a company, 
you are naturally going to make it much easier for a union to organize you because anything you say and do that sounds anti-union in any way, the union and other union sympathizers and other activists can point to and go, wait a minute, what you're saying is directly contradictory to your corporate values. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big part of it. I think the other big part of it, frankly, and again, this is maybe a little bit outside of a PR point of view, but I mean, I think a lot of what Starbucks is false, you know, mistakenly done is they focused on things like wages and benefits. And there was a terrific article. I think you were the one who actually posted it originally. I think it was an Atlantic article about what went wrong with Starbucks. It was all kinds of operational changes mm -hmm. that made. And I've seen this in company after company after company. It's like, you know, we go in, we're brought in and the company says, we don't know why these folks want a union. We pay them well, the benefits are well. And then you start talking to supervisors and they're talking about you know, we've got 12 hour shifts, six days a week, and you've got to wear all this PPE. And, you know, this piece of equipment is broken and that piece of equipment is broken. It's like, it doesn't matter how much you're paying people. You could pay them twice the market average wherever you are, but if their job has become much harder, and again, that article that you flagged originally talks about this in spades with the complexity of drink orders and right. drive-throughs and broken machines and so forth. Yes, that's part of it. And then the staffing piece is a part of it with the great resignation and all of that. But the things that the company can control, some of it is wages and benefits for sure. Obviously they can decide we can pay these wages, we can provide these benefits, but what drinks are we selling, right? Just the same way Dick said, we're not selling guns anymore. Starbucks can go, you know what? It's, we've made it too complicated. Yes, I know somebody who wants their venti half, half, half skim latte with a double shot or whatever. Again, I'm not a customer, <laughs> so I don't even know what I'm talking about. But they they can decide how complex or not complex to make the uh, the drinks and the job. And they can decide what equipment gets repaired and what doesn't and what's new and all of that. And that article pointed, and I've seen other articles, similar articles that point to the fact it's not just wages and benefits. And yeah. that's, I think, a classic mistake that Starbucks, which is a very obviously enormously successful company, ubiquitous, obviously, but I think they've really missed the boat on that. They, they are, I don't know to what extent they're addressing the complexity and difficulty of the job. And I believe that if you were to survey the employees in those 200 plus stores that went union, some of it would be staffing, yes. Some of it would be wages and benefits and hours, yes. But I'm sure a sizable chunk of that is what I was just talking about. So I think that's a miss. It, the point is you have to make sure you understand what is really driving people towards unionization. And then again, if you are you know, a more seen as a more progressive, socially responsible company, just understand nothing wrong with that. Just understand it's going to make it much harder for you to then say we're a non-union company and want to stay there. Yeah, and and that's the you cited uh, in different contexts. You cited REI. That that's kind of a trend right now. There's a lot of progressive brands who are actually, in many ways, well regarded as employers. Right, um, um, Starbucks, REI, oh, yeah. Yeah. Apple. Right. Trader Joe's, right. Amazon to a lesser extent. Amazon sort of has a, a yin yang. They they offer like high pay, but they work their people really hard. You know, so yeah. it's it's exactly. sort of like um, in some it, at some point, I think Amazon had greater cachet than it does today. But but those are those companies are especially vulnerable. It seems in the in this environment that we're operating and living in right now from a, a labor Absolutely. relations perspective. And it and it's not just because they're kind of hip. Or progressive, it's it, there's something else going on 
Um, but it, but it's very intriguing that there's that common thread that has run through a lot of the the activity we've seen in 2022. Well, yeah, and you've been doing this a long time too, Michael. Yeah. I mean, you're not nearly as old as I am, but uh, you know, you it's pretty recently that we've even seen unions having any interest whatsoever in organizing a 10 person store, a 15 person employee store. I mean, that was usually way too small potatoes for them. They didn't care about that stuff. What do you think? Even 10 years ago, yeah. they wouldn't have cared about that. They would be like, no, 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 no. We want to get that 500 employee distribution center or that, you know, 900 nurse hospital or whatever it is. That's what they were focused on. Now they're perfectly happy to get five, six, 10 employees at a time and then bootstrap that to get all of the other stores in the region. Yep. Um, we're, we're over the time I allotted. Um, I don't want to occupy too much more of your time, Nick. So I, first of all, thanks for being the guest. I always love talking to you. Um, is, there, is there any last thought that you'd like to share? And if not, um, then if you could just tell people where they could find you. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, and it, it hopefully came through in a lot of my comments so far is, my, I mean, the one piece of advice I would give to all of your listeners is don't wait until you're in a crisis to figure out what you're gonna say, what data you have, where your vulnerabilities are. And yes, I know people are trying to do so much more with so much less than they have before, but finding a way as you're getting into like budget setting for next year and prioritizing and who you're hiring and staffing and organization charts, I strongly encourage all of your listeners to just do some planning, some vulnerability planning so that when or if, and if it doesn't happen, you're still a better and a stronger organization for mm -hmm. it, having done it, invest the time, invest the resources to make that stuff happen. So, because again, you'll be so much, your, your response, if you do find yourself in the, uh, in, the, in the critique, in a much stronger position, you'll get out of it much more successfully with more of your reputation intact, sales intact, employee retention intact, ability to recruit intact, all of those things will be morale, safety, discretionary effort, all of the things that HR people think about all the time. Those will all be so much stronger if you invest the time up front. And it doesn't need to be months and months and months, but just a concerted effort. Maybe it's a task force. Maybe it's a couple of folks. Maybe you use an outside consultant to help you do that stuff. But that's it's so important to do, and you're really going to be much better off if you do. Yep. And, and where folks might reach out to you if they have a desire to do so. Sure. Yeah. So I am, my firm is called Reputation Partners. It's very simple URL, reputationpartners.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at NickCom and I'm on LinkedIn and uh, all of the other social media platforms. I'm not on Pinterest yet. I still haven't figured that one out. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm on Instagram I'm for what you're, that's worth. You're making me choke up. I have a Pinterest account, but I don't think I've looked at it in about nine years. So uh, that, it's one yeah. of those, that's like MySpace or something, although I'm sure people still use it. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention, I noticed yesterday a big, uh, a big press release. Congratulations yes. on- Thank you. You guys Thank have, you. you guys have some uh, growth in leadership. Uh, so yeah. That, yeah. I've, I've decided, you know, I've been, I founded the firm 20 years ago and my title has been founder and president for basically the entire time. And so I've now decided to do my first external hire. So a woman I've known for years named Amy Littleton, uh, who is going to be brought in and is going to help me lead the firm. She's going to be president. And I figured after 20 years, Michael, what do you think? I was due for promotion, right? Once right. Years or so, <laughs> whether I'm due for or not, I'm, so I'm now going to be CEO. So I'm looking forward to that and hopefully continuing to grow the firm and uh, Still having a blast. Uh, October is going to be our 20th anniversary, and 
I'm having a, a blast doing it. We found a nice niche uh, and uh, enjoying it and just trying to grow and keep serving clients as much as we can. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that. And I'll look Thank forward you. to uh, chatting with you uh, as we do down the road. So Absolutely. Thank have you. Have a Michael. great day, Nick. Thanks for doing it. Take care. All right. You Bye. bet. Have a good one. And let's see. Okay. Sorry, it's not cooperating here for some reason. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.